The rest of us can turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. The book of Malachi, chapter 1, is where we'll be this morning. The book of Malachi is the, the last book in the Old Testament, right before Matthew. And I mentioned last week, I'll say it again, there's that... There's a couple annoying pages in between the Old and New Testament that really shouldn't be there in your Bibles. And if I, it's the only page in your Bible I'll give you the freedom to rip out if you want, because uh, there is no separation, and we call it Old and New Covenant, but it is one story, cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. So turn to Malachi, right before the book of Matthew. Chapter 1. We'll be in verses 6 through 14 this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV, which says, As a son honors his father, and a servant his master, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Father, you are a great king, and we pray that your name will be feared and honored among us this morning. So help us, by your grace, to understand what is maybe a foreign passage to us, to apply it to our own lives, and to worship you. Be with us as we gather here. Be with the children in children's church. May we as a church praise your name. Amen.
In the last week of his earthly life, before he was executed on a cross, Jesus was with his disciples teaching in the temple. It's where he spent a lot of his time in that last week. Teaching the temple. And the temple in Israel, as most of you know, was kind of the heart of worship for Israel. In the capital city of Jerusalem, the temple was where worship centered. It was the heart of worship. It was where God's glory dwelt in in the temple and is where Jesus taught before he died. In one particular moment, he was teaching his disciples. He was warning them against the worship of the Pharisees, those who made a show of worship publicly, but their hearts internally were far from God. And while he was teaching them, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus famously commented on this poor widow who had not given very much in the grand scheme of things, but in reality gave everything. She gave everything she had. Her act of worship was more significant and meaningful than any of the rich men in the temple. Why? Because it showed her total devotion to God. That she would give everything out of thankfulness, out of joy, in offering to God that she gave sacrificially. It showed the disposition of her heart. A reflection of her total devotion. Does your worship properly reflect God's greatness? This is a question I want us all to ponder this morning as we go through this text in Malachi. Does your worship properly reflect God's greatness? It's the question this text asks. As God confronts the people and the priests specifically for their apathetic worship before God, their lackluster, insincere worship. As we talked about last week, the book of Malachi was written to the Israelites after they returned from captivity in Babylon. They resettled Jerusalem, resettled in Israel, and they had rebuilt the city. They had rebuilt the temple. The structures were in place, but their lives of worship were not yet rebuilt. So Malachi is a book that speaks to the Israelites about rebuilding Uh, not just the physical structures around them, but the the worship in their heart. So a restoration of worship. And the book of Malachi centers around six oracles, six kind of words given to the people. This is the second oracle. In fact, we're going to go into, uh, we're going to split up the second oracle that ends in chapter 2, verse 9. We're just going to focus on the first part of it this morning. Of this second oracle, this word to the people. And this word really asks the question, does your worship properly reflect God's greatness. We'll work through this question in three sections as we go through the text. First, in verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8, I'm going to read them again for you. I think you can summarize these verses as God's indictment of Israel. This is his charge. This is his basic conviction against them, the charge against the people who do not properly recognize him and honor him as they should. God's indictment of Israel, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how we despise your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? 
by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. So here's the basic charge. The people had polluted the offering table of the Lord by their blemished, unworthy sacrifices. They've shown they do not honor or revere God. And that's the the charge he opens up with. He starts with a basic truth, a given premise that all would agree to. Especially in that culture where respect and authority are are held in high honor. And fathers were meant to be held in high high honor. Masters would be held in high honor. That If you were under them, you were to honor them and revere them. So he starts with a basic given premise that all would agree to. Does a son honor his father? Yes. Does a servant honor his master? Yes, these things are true. So if that is true, then this also ought to be true. What this is called is kind of a a a lesser to greater argument. Start with a a small basic premise, then this ought to be true. If a chocolate chip is delicious, then the candy bar is better, right? That's true. Now, there are limits to how much food, and we experienced some of this last night. A slice is better, not necessarily a whole pie, but... uh, But we start with a smaller premise. If a son honors his father, then ought not you honor God, who is the father? He's the one who created Israel, who redeemed his people. He is the father of all. Should he not have honor? Should he not have fear? And when Malachi says fear, it's not so much trembling fear as much as reverence. Should God not be revered? Well, have we not revered you, Lord? Well, you've offered polluted offerings. And in Israel, what he's really talking about is the... A table of sacrifice that was in the temple. And the people would make animal sacrifices to God out of atonement, repayment for sin, or out of free will offerings, thanks, or, or vows, as we'll talk about later. They would offer animal sacrifices and worship to God. And there were laws about those sacrifices. They were to be unblemished. Deuteronomy 21.15 But if this animal has any blemish, If it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You shall not bring any animal that is blemished to this table of sacrifice. But the priests, you notice this is directly to the priests that God is talking. The leaders are in the crosshairs here. It's a word for all the people, but the priests in particular who were responsible for this worship, they allowed unblemished or blemished animals to be sacrificed. You can understand why people might want to bring their blemished animals, their imperfect animals. After all, you need your good cattle, your perfect goats. I mean, those are the ones you live on. Those are the ones you want to reproduce. Those are the ones you want to breed. That's your financial security. You don't want to keep reproducing with the blemished ones. God is a gracious God. He won't really care. It's all the same to him. And so why not just bring him the ones that we're not going to really bank on for our livelihood? The leftovers, we can bring those to God. Makes financial sense. Makes pragmatic sense. God wouldn't want us to be at risk in our financial security. He would want us to be well off and covered, so why would we give up our best? Why is this such a big deal to God, this the quality of their offering? 
I'll put it to you this way. Imagine you are having your boss over for dinner. And you make uh, a night of it. You put it on your calendar. You circle that the end of your calendar. You say, come on over. We'll have you over for dinner. Then as your boss gets there and as you fail to take his or her coat and as they walk through your unvacuumed floor and unmopped tile in your kitchen, they sit down and you say, yeah, I'll have a seat. You know, I kind of forgot about this. Let's see what's in the fridge. Now, none of you would ever do this. You're too polite. But let's just imagine you go through your fridge and you say, well, okay, what's left in here? Well, I've got a half of a sub We'll throw that out. We've got a little bit of applesauce left over, some leftover spaghetti, and you kind of put that on the table and say, all right, let's eat. Now, I like leftovers, so I might not mind too much, but, but if I was in that position, I, I would you know, politely eat, and we'd have a good conversation, and then as quickly as I could, I'd make my exit, and on the way home, I'd be talking to my wife and say, that was weird, right? I mean, we had this night circled on our calendar, and it almost felt like they didn't want us there. Didn't prepare for us, didn't make anything. Not to look a gift horse in the mouth, but feel a little bit disrespected. That's essentially what the people were doing for God. What leftovers do we have? We'll give those to him. And God says something a little bit cutting. Would you offer that to your governor? And the word governor is an Assyrian word. They had to pay tribute to the kings that they were under. The Syrians, Babylonians, Persians. It was customary to bring tribute to kings, to seek goodwill, to honor. God says, you wouldn't do that to those kings you've been under. He wouldn't accept that. You think I will. It's a reflection, what you offer up to God, of how much you value him, revere him. And their worship, by offering blind and lame animals, showed they had little value, reverence for God. It's not that God needs their best animals. He's not hungry. It's a reflection of their heart. And as we read through this, we should ask the question, do we bring our best to worship? In our song... In our scripture reading, in our prayer, in our fellowship, in our offering, in all that we do, do we give God kind of what's left over? Or do we bring our best, or as we might call the first fruits, the, the very first offerings, our first energy? There, there's a pastor, I think I've mentioned this before, there's a pastor on Twitter, and often on Saturday nights, he tweets out Sunday morning worship as a Saturday night decision. Now I know some of us, again, might be a little tired from partying too much last night, but... This is the idea. What you do throughout the week uh, affects your worship, and it'll show where your priorities are. And if you're staying up late all Saturday night, and then you stumble into church Sunday morning, a little bit distracted, a little bit tired, not really uh, fully there yet, and you kind of float through, going through the motions of the worship service, and then go home and say, okay, glad that's over with. Where was your heart in all of that? And it's not just a Sunday morning thing, it's a through-the-week thing. Where is your heart in your worship? Where is the space in your calendar, the space in your heart, the space in your devotion for the Lord that you give to Him? 
And you say, well, I've got a lot of really important things. My finances I have to work on, my exercise, my kids, all those things. I mean, where am I going to fit God in? And then I would say, well, would you quit offering your blemished animals to the Lord? I'm speaking to the priests here. <laughs> I'm speaking to myself. This is as convicting or if not more convicting for me than anybody else because we're the ones responsible for the worship. So this is talking to me first and I have maybe the hardest time of anybody with this. Will you give your best to the Lord because he deserves it? God's indictment of Israel is that they hadn't. So he has a suggestion for them. That's in verses 9 through 10. Maybe a suggestion is too light a word. But verses 9 through 10 shows God's suggestion for Israel. Verse 9. Now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, said the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. I think you can sum up God's suggestion here in basic, two basic ideas where he basically says, stop what you're doing and ask for mercy. Here's what you do if you find that your worship is lackluster, that you're not giving your best to God. Stop it and ask for mercy. First, God calls them to ask for mercy, that God may be gracious to them, that he might forgive them. Their offerings were not going to earn acceptance, not like that they weren't. And, truth be told, there is no offering they could make that would earn God's acceptance. The only recourse they have would be to plead with God for mercy. It's the only possible response when you are in moral debt. And sometimes we try and play this game with God, and if you play this game in your own heart and mind, as I've done, and I'm guilty of at times, it shows you're a legalist. And the game goes like this. You say, okay, I did something wrong, God. I'll repay you by doing this. Oh, God, I'm sorry about that. You know what? Next time, I'll do, I'll do better. I'll, I'll, I'll pray twice as long. It shows in your heart and mind that you think you have to, like, earn back God's favor. So it would be like, the let's say, oh, sorry for the blemished offerings. You know what? Next time, it's two goats. And you'll notice that God doesn't tell them to do that. He doesn't say, oh, now you're going to have to pay double. What he says is just, ask for mercy. Because there's no amount of repaying that's going to pay it back. You don't earn his favor and acceptance that way. That's not how it works. Just plead for mercy. It's the only option you have when you're in moral debt to God is just ask God, be gracious, please. And then, stop it. That's maybe the more shocking thing God says. I wish somebody would have shut the doors. as you all were profaning my name by your irreverent worship, one of you should have had the boldness, the conviction, the love of the Lord to shut the doors of the temple and stop it. You can see why it would have been hard for somebody to do that. If you look around in culture, and church culture outside, usually people don't like the whistleblower. The one who raises the problem says, you know, there's some corruption here that I think we should talk about. 
usually that person gets turned on because they're disrupting the comfortable flow of ease that have been going on. And very often the person that blows the whistle gets turned on by everybody else. So you can see why it would be hard for somebody to do that. But God is looking for just that kind of person who will love him enough to stop. It's improper worship. Keeping on the food theme, my wife and I love to watch cooking shows. Uh, During the early days of COVID, Top Chef was our COVID binge show. One of the things you learn in these cooking competition shows is that more isn't always better. And so when somebody was presenting a dish to be judged in these competitions, there was always a red flag if somebody said, you know, for this entree, I'm going to do three different things. I'm going to have a a beef, a chicken, and a fish. And as soon as that happens, you go, oh no, this is a bad move. Why? Well, if you have one focused you know, entree that has one real main element, you can focus on it, you can make it good. But as soon as you start adding others, you're just complicating it. Now not only one thing has to be good, but three have to be good. And the dish will suffer by its weakest link. And it happens every time. Somebody tries to get too complicated, and then one part isn't up to par, and the whole dish is brought down. What you learn is actually doing more isn't always better. In fact, sometimes it's better not to do it at all. It would have been better not to serve that bad element than to serve it and have it be terrible. Now, let's talk about worship. It would have been better had they not worshipped at all than to offer up what they were offering. And it reminds me of what Paul says to the Corinthians. He's talking about the abuse that they had done to the communion table, the rivalry, the infighting. The communion of the Corinthian church. And Paul says, it would have been better for you not to meet. When you gather together, it's actually for harm, not good. Be better off at home than doing what you're doing. Be less insult to the Lord to do nothing than to worship the way they were. So let's apply this to ourselves specifically. Now, disclaimer, I don't have any particular thing in mind. We worship well as a church. We serve well as a church. I want to commend us in that. But I want to give examples just to get our mind thinking about this. If you're a teacher in Sunday school, And if you don't prepare beforehand and you come into Sunday morning and realize, oh, I haven't really thought about the lesson, but don't worry, I've got a curriculum in front of me. I'll just walk through that and the Lord will use it. I would say probably better off you just didn't teach at all. If you're going to put your heart and your mind and your hours into preparing to teach God's people the word, then don't do it. And if you're a musician and you're not going to pray about what you're doing and if you're not going to practice your instrument or, uh, and you're going to stand up here and have a listless, kind of lifeless attitude and not really think about what it is that you're doing as you lead God's people in worship, I'd say, you know what, just, just don't get on stage. It's better off for you not to sing in that way or play in that way than to do it in a way that dishonors the Lord. 
If you're serving in youth ministry or in children's ministry or in the nursery, but you don't care for or pray for the people you're serving, you don't make any relational connections with them, and you don't want to sacrifice too much, and you say, you know what, I'll show up, and somebody will tell me what to do, then I'll go home, then it's better off if you don't do it. And if you're a pastor, and if you're a, an elder and a leader, and if you stand up, you know, I didn't really read through what I was going to read in front of the people before, and I didn't pray about it, and I didn't think through and do my scriptural study beforehand, but you know what? The Lord will help in time. If you don't put your heart into what you're doing, if you don't think about what you're doing at all, and you don't offer it up to the Lord and say, this is yours, you do with it what you will, but I'm going to put my very best and all my energy into it. If that is not your disposition, then don't do it. Don't dishonor the Lord. Don't dishonor his people in that way. And this is the thing that convicts me all the time. It's what drives me to my knees on Sunday morning because I don't want to offer up anything that would dishonor, disservice the Lord or his people. It is a call to all of us. If you are not going to honor the Lord properly, then shut the doors. And if your worship is laughing, then ask for God's grace. If you will serve, Serve with your full heart because God is worthy. And as he says in verses 11 through 14, his name will be great among the nations. We've seen God's indictment of Israel, his suggestion for Israel now. Verses 11 through 14 focus on God's name beyond Israel. God's name beyond Israel, verses 11 through 14. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. And its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Whenever you're doing Bible study, it's always a good idea to look for repeated words and phrases. And what are the repeated words and phrases here? The Lord of hosts is repeated throughout this passage. It's a way of saying the Lord of heavenly armies. It's emphasizing God's greatness, his power. He's the one who commands heavenly angelic armies. And that word name, repeated eight times in this whole section. God is concerned about his name, which is a way of saying his, the whole identification of his character and his reputation, all that he is. His name stands for his character. And he says everywhere, from the rising of the sun to its setting, from beginning to end, everywhere, all over, my name will be great. And again, think of how The Israelites would hear this when God says, my name will be great among the nations. They'll offer a pure offering. Those nations, including 
Syria and Babylon and Persia, the Edomites who we talked about last week. My name will be great everywhere. They'll offer up your offering. It will be one day that all the world will worship purely and perfectly before me and offer a pure offering. And if that's the case, shouldn't you, Israel, who are my people, shouldn't you be first in line in offering up your best? But what were they doing? Offering blemished offerings. He adds a new kind of blemished offering. Animals taken by violence. There's a reference to animals taken by violence, which might be animals that had violence done to them. So they're scarred or somehow ripped or mauled. In that case, those animals were normally given to dogs. And they were trash, essentially. It could be they were offering those kinds of animals. Or this could be referring to Animals that were literally stolen. You're offering up stolen animals taken by violence in offering. Now imagine on Sunday morning you're driving to church and you say, kids, daddy has to make a stop. And you put on the ski mask and you go into the gas station, make a withdrawal, and then put that in the offering plate. Would that be accepted by the Lord? No. I think we know that. But that's how insane this is. What they were offering before the Lord. Contrast that with King David. If I can just take a couple moments just to tell a story. The end of 2 Samuel, King David was called to, was demanded to make an offering to the Lord because he had not trusted the Lord, made a census of the people when he wasn't supposed to, and so he was supposed to make restitution, bring an offering to the Lord. So he was called to go to a certain man's house, buy his threshing floor, in that threshing floor, build an altar, make an offering to God. So that's what King David does. And he obeys, and he goes to that man's threshing floor and says, you know, I'd like to buy this so that I can make an altar here and worship the Lord. And the man of the house does something that actually is right and natural and good to do. What does he do if you know the story at the end of Second Samuel? He says to the King David, you're the king, please. You don't have to buy it from me. Your money's no good here. Well, I offer it to you. Why don't I give it to you so that you can make this offering? How does King David respond? He says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. David had a righteous attitude of worship. I will not offer anything to the Lord that costs me nothing. Nothing. Worship, by definition, should be sacrificial, costing me my time, my energy, my finances, my heart. In contrast, the people of Israel cheated God. Verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has mailed his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. It's a reference to a situation where God had blessed somebody and in response they vowed to the Lord, I'm going to give you such and such. I'll give you a pristine animal in worship in response to God's grace. But then they actually get to the table and they offer a blemished, lame, blind animal. What it's basically saying is, I don't really care about what God had done. 
not going to make good on my vow. And Ecclesiastes 5.5 5 says it's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. And that's what this person had done, what the people were doing. Vowing to God, yeah, 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 I'm going to worship. And not following through. So God says cursed is that person. Fun fact, I think I'm right on this, you can check me on it by reading the prophets. I think this is the only place, at least in the minor prophets, maybe all the prophets, where God enacts the curse. Or maybe just be the minor prophets, where the prophet says cursed be this person. It shows you how serious worship is to the Lord. The person who cheats God in worship reveals that they don't love him, they don't want anything to do with him, they don't revere him, and so they are cursed under the covenant. Their attitudes reflected in their thoughts all around that worship has become a burden. What a nuisance, it says in verse 13. What a bother this is. Worship has become a burden. So I'll ask you, is worship of the Lord a burden to you? A nuisance? Now I'll admit, not every song we sing on Sunday morning has my full heart and attention, and I probably need to repent of that. Not every song is rapturous in our experience, and not every sermon is spellbinding in all its moments, and sometimes it can feel like we're doing the same thing week in and week out. And that's true of Sunday morning worship, or sometimes it feels just a little too routine at times. And then we get to our own home lives, and I think I've read Genesis how many times as I start my yearly worship plan, and man, I'm just not feeling it. And sometimes we get in those moments where we're like, ah, oh, this, this is the routine of it all, it's just kind of burdensome and bothersome. And if that's you, and that's all of us from time to time, I would say, when you feel that, that is a wonderful moment to just repent. Because it's not the routine that's causing that. It's your heart. Because I have other routines in my life that I find not to be a problem at all. Twitter, for some reason, is not burdensome to me. It's almost automatic. I try and make a habit of telling my wife and my kids I love them every day and hug them and kiss them. And you know what? I do that every day, and it's not burdensome. I don't have to find time in my calendar to do it. I just do it. Why? Because I love them. And if you love something, it is not a burdensome routine. It does not get monotonous. Why? Because your heart is there in it. So if you find that worship is becoming a little bit of a burdensome nuisance in a routine, that is a good indication, not that uh, something around you is wrong, but something in your heart is wrong. It's an invitation for all of us. And again, I'm talking to me most of all. It's an invitation for repentance and return to the Lord. Why? Because his name will be and is great among the nations, and he is a great king. And his now, right now, his name is great among the nations in a way that Israelites probably never could have imagined. Because all around the world, we have representatives here this morning who can attest to this. The name of Jesus Christ is praised. And God is worshipped as a great king. Now, our worship looks a little bit different today. And I thought about this. Maybe someday we should just bring an animal to church and just do it Old Testament. That would probably be some health code violations and kids running for the door. That would just be a whole mess. So why don't we do that? Why don't we make animal sacrifices now? Well, there's a different kind of sacrifice that's called for. Romans 12.1. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Why don't we sacrifice animals? Because we are called and required to sacrifice our whole selves, our whole lives, as an offering to God. And that is our worship, and that also presents a new problem. And what is that problem? We asked in the beginning, does your worship properly reflect God's greatness? Now, if we offer up our whole selves, does that properly reflect God's greatness? Does my whole self and all that I am, is that a proper and acceptable offering considering how great and how perfect God is? Here's what I'm offering up to God. A bad back and a polluted mind. Here you go, Lord. What I am offering up to God in myself, in my whole life, is a blemished offering, a lame, blind offering to God. Sinful and polluted. Is that proper? Is that fitting with who he is? And the answer is no. So what hope do we have? Well, the hope we have, the good news, is there is an unblemished offering that was made on our behalf. When all other offerings couldn't do, there was one offering that God made and he had to make it because he knew that people couldn't. And he sent his son who came and offered himself up in our place. And the son's worship was not lackluster. He gave his whole perfect life for the Father to save sinners, to bring glory to him and his great name. Jesus is our true example in worship in that he offered up perfection to the Father. And he's our substitute offered up in our place so that now... Belonging to Jesus Christ, the worship we offer is acceptable. Polluted as it may be by sin, and our worship is never perfect, it is laundered through Jesus Christ, made clean. It's exactly what Hebrews 13 says. Hebrews 13, 15 Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Because Jesus died in our place as a perfect offering, because we belong to him, we can and we do offer up a pure, acceptable, proper worship to God, but only in Jesus Christ the land who was slain. Would you pray with me? And Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ the words of Malachi are fulfilled that your name is great among the nations, honored and revered through a perfect, unblemished sacrifice. Lord, may we be joined to him in his offering by grace. And then knowing that grace, may we give our whole selves, our whole lives up to worship you. And Lord, we know uh, we will do this imperfectly. But we pray that you would grow us in our worship more and more 
until the day we are perfectly sanctified and we see Jesus face to face. Thank you for your grace and mercy upon us in the meantime. May your name be revered among us. Amen.